So two of my uh, two of my favorite hobbies and activities um, involve seeing things that I wouldn't normally be able to see if somebody hadn't shown me how to see them. Um, if you look at a, a bonsai tree, um, something I've been doing for a couple of decades now, um, and and you just look at it, it's a it's a small tree. Um, but unless somebody shows you how the buds are going to branch and how the flowers are going to form, um, you don't know the form that it's going to take. But once someone shows you and tells you how it works and, and shows you how to clip and trim certain um, buds, you can actually manipulate the direction that the tree will grow. Um, fishing is another one. I, I love to fish. Um, and I haven't done as much river fishing as I have lake and pond fishing, but um, in a river, Reading a river is, is a great um, art. It's one that I'm not great at, but if you look at a river, you just have a bunch of moving water. Um, but if you have someone show you how the moving water is functioning and where the fish might be, you begin to understand how riffles work and why the fish would hang out in a riffle. You begin to see a pool and see what might be beneath the pool. Um, so to see what truly is, I mean, really, to truly see is not so much to look closer, but it's to be instructed by someone who knows the thing that you're seeing better. And the best um, way to see is to be instructed by the one who created everything that we see. We see Jesus doing this all the time. Um, Jesus did it with people, uh, with places, but he saw people's intentions. Uh, he saw their fears, their lies, their motives, the heart of hearts. Um, he truly saw, and if we're going to follow him, we need to truly see like he sees. So this morning, um, I want to look at a passage that really, I think, helps us to see, and it's a passage that we wouldn't perhaps necessarily go to when we think about um, seeing. We're going to look at the flood in, uh, in Genesis, and of all of the covenants, um, the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic, the Davidic, the New Covenant, the Mosaic. Uh, the Noahic is the one that I've probably spent the most time with. So I've been kind of poking around there lately and um, have just found some really beautiful things. But before we actually get to uh, Genesis 8 and 9, we're going to kind of take a roundabout direction and we're going to look at Psalm 29. Um, psalm 29 is a psalm written by David. And it's actually, if you will, kind of a, a narrative, kind of like a theological narrative of the flood. So you have this psalm written up by David centuries later that's actually about the flood um, where God comes in judgment. And it gives us some good insight and actually allows us to see the flood more clearly. And then what God does afterwards will give us insight to see something that I want us to see more clearly. Uh, so Psalm 29, a Psalm of David, reads like this. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and might. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bow down to the Lord who appears in holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is above the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord splinters the cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf and Syrian like a wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forests bare. And in his temple, his glory appears. The Lord sat enthroned over the flood. 
The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you, Lord, that you reveal yourself uh, to us uh, in it. Please, Father, uh, be with us now by your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would speak to us and that you would give us hearts and ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm, I'm guessing some of you have heard that psalm before. Um, and out of context, out of knowing that it's actually about the flood, it can seem kind of odd. But let's, let's jump in and just kind of pick out the main sections here. Um, it begins in verses 1 and 2, ascribe, the, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and might. And basically, it's, it's a call um, to praise from the angels and the heavenly beings to praise the Lord. And then this second piece, the voice of the Lord is over the waters, the glory of God thunders, the Lord is above the mighty waters, the voice of the Lord is powerful, the voice of the Lord is majestic. It reminds us, really, of God hovering over the waters at creation when he brought the world into existence. But here we have the presence of God over the waters, not as he's about to create, but as he's about to come in judgment on the world that he created and the mankind who has become wholly sinful in their hearts. So we have this, this hearkening back to creation. We see God coming. He's there like he was hovering over the waters at creation. He's now enthroned over the flood, but now he's coming in judgment. So instead of creation, we have in the next few verses this sort of poetic deconstructing of creation. We have splitting trees, upending nations, lightning and thunder that shake deserts, laying low forests. And that's what he's talking about when it says the voice of the Lord splinters the cedars, the Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. So you can picture the living God, creator God, who is enthroned over the flood as the flood is coming. And he's coming now, not as an act of mercy and creation, but an act of judgment on the creation that has become wholly sinful. So with this, though, at the end of verse 9, it says, in his temple, his glory appears. With the earth as his footstool and the heavens as his throne, his glory appears as God comes in judgment. The Lord sat enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. And that is the creator God. He is enthroned as king forever. But then, instead of ending there, we hear that the king has not forgotten his people. Despite the great sin, despite the judgment that's coming, we get this piece of hope. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. And there's one reason that there's hope. There is hope because this act of judgment is also an act of recreation. From the waters of judgment, God brings a new world. And on it, he places a new humanity with Noah and his family. He commands them to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth like he did with Adam and Eve. But the truth is, and we know this, he's still only an old man. The new man, the true second Adam, the son of God, would come later. And with him, with Jesus Christ, he would bring a new humanity. We would be new creations in Christ. And a new creation itself would eventually come with the new heavens and the new earth. So Psalm 29 gives us a picture of what's actually happening at the flood. It's not just a bunch of rain. It's God himself coming in his theophanic presence in glory as he brings judgment upon the world. 
But out of that judgment, we get this beautiful picture of recreation. The new world that he's bringing out of it, Adam and, or Noah and his family, they're going to repopulate. So now what I'd like to do is jump into the actual flood in Genesis. Um, and just a quick bit of context there. Uh, Genesis 1 through 3, remember we have creation through fall. Uh, Genesis 4 is Cain and Abel. Genesis 5 is, is a narrative genealogy from Adam all the way to Noah. And then in Genesis 6, we get the problem. We get the reason why the flood has come. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. So God's coming in judgment on the sin of mankind, but Noah has found favor in his eyes. So God warns Noah, he gives him commands to build an ark, then he opens the skies, and for 40 days and 40 nights, watery judgment comes as the Lord sits enthroned above the flood. After 150 days, the waters recede, and God calls Noah and his family from the ark. And after commanding them to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth, after giving them dominion and some commands, God establishes his covenant with them. God said to Noah and his family, his sons with him. I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you. It's a universal covenant. The birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will, will there be a flood to destroy the earth. So we have the flood Noah and his sons come out. God is going to establish this covenant that never again will he destroy all of creation with a flood. But before that, something happens. Before God comes and speaks the covenant to Noah and his family and all of creation, um, something happens. Noah comes out of the ark, and scripture says that the very first thing that he does is he builds an altar to the Lord. And he takes some unclean animals and he burns them as a sacrifice to the Lord. And scripture says that the Lord smelled this beautiful aroma. And here are the words that he speaks when he smells this beautiful aroma of the sacrifice. The Lord says, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And that is what I would like to focus on for just a minute this morning tucked into the covenant, which we think of as, right, the rainbow and God's promise to never again destroy the earth with a flood, we have tucked in this promise. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. It's a promise that as long as the earth endures, God will sustain the created order. He promises that as long as the earth endures, which is until the new heavens and the new earth are revealed, which is the end of the world, which is Jesus returning in glory. By his mighty hand, the Father will sustain the harvest, he'll sustain cold and heat, he'll sustain the seasons, he'll sustain day and night themselves, all of the conditions that are necessary for mankind to exist. So brothers and sisters, think about what that means, what the practical implications of that are. It means that you never need to fear that a giant asteroid is going to destroy the earth. 
It means you never need to fear that the sun is going to burn up and wipe out the world. God is creator and sustainer. Every flower, every tree, every mountain, every stream, he is actively sustaining them. Now this does not mean that we can be irresponsible with the earth. In fact, it's just the opposite. As children of God, as co-heirs with Jesus, we are to be the most responsible of stewards in caring for the creation that God is taking pains to sustain because it is his beautiful creation. And this reality, this truth, that God is actively sustaining and promises to sustain his creation. He promises to sustain day and night, winter and summer, the seasons, harvests, ground ripe for food. He promises to sustain all of these things until the new heavens and the new earth. It sheds light on what Paul is talking about in Romans 1, where he says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. The point is this, when you look around, when you see God's creation, you don't just see his handiwork, you see him at work, active, The stones are crying out, the trees are attesting, flowers are screaming, the Lord, our King, upholds us. And that's what we should see. Not a beautiful product, but the living grip of the King. So take a moment and really just sort of look around. The trees are turning, the grass is browning a little bit, the sun's dampened a tiny little bit by the fog and by the cloud cover. The flowers are over here on this tree You see God's creation, and you know that by his word he created it. But do you also see him actively sustaining it? The Father God, the creator of the universe, is not just dropping creation onto us so that we can enjoy it. Oh, we do. But he's active in holding it and sustaining it that we might see him behind every beautiful thing that we see. That is the Lord God sustaining creation, and he promises that he will sustain it until this world is no more. Now, the reason that it's so important for us to see this is because creation is that thing that is all around us. To see it clearly reminds us to see everything else as it truly is. If you will, it's kind of the everywhere reminder to see what truly is. So we look at creation and we don't want to just see, oh, that's a beautiful tree. We wanna see the handiwork of God being sustained and upheld by the living God that God is at work in creation around us, and then it reminds us to see other things correctly, to see this, to see the Bible, right? I'm sure, I'm sure you guys have multiple Bibles. To, to see the Bible not as a book that is sitting on your desk with a bunch of other school books and has similar, slightly perhaps more value, but instead to see the living word of God as words of life, to see it as alive, to see it as the gift in which God reveals himself and gives us the ability to see everything based on what he reveals in here. If you're not reading it, you will forget that. 
It will just become another book. But when you sit in it and you read God's revelation, you begin to see as he sees. To see people. Every single person that you see in person here now, everyone you see today, everyone that you'll see on Instagram, to see them not, not with the eyes of human judgment, people that are attractive or annoying or um, frustrating, but instead to see them as God sees, to see that they are beautiful creations of the living God, that every single person reflects God and his image, to see that every single person is someone that you have no right to judge as anything less than the beloved of God the creator. How about the election? This gives us eyes to see the election that's coming up. You may, you may see in your eyes right now the good guys and the bad guys. The right side, the wrong side, the Christian side, the other side. But here's what you're really seeing when you see the election that's coming up. You are really seeing divinely appointed rulers. The scripture says there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Some are for blessing. Some are for judgment. Some are for both. But don't be swayed into thinking that there are good guys, bad guys. Don't, don't sit under the actual truth of the narrative that the Lord God is about to place a new leader over our country and he's doing it with sovereign and divine purposes and reason. It is our goal to be faithful as we approach it, faithful as we talk about it, faithful as we encounter one another as images of the living God when we talk, when we debate, when we love, when we lay our lives down for one another, even when we talk about things like the election. And then we begin to see things way more important than the election. We begin to see ourselves, You, me, we are more sin, and this is Tim Keller and he just says it so beautifully, but we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. All of the narratives that we've told ourselves from childhood, all of the things we think about ourselves when we compare ourselves to others, what we need to do is we need to evaluate ourselves based on what God says about us. And here's what God says. You're far more sinful than you'll ever imagine. And you are far more loved than you could ever fathom. That's the truth about who you are. You are created in the image of God, and you are a daughter, you are a son of the living God. And then we see Jesus, and we see him clearly. Not just, and, and I, I say this intentionally, not just as the Son of God who died for you and rose from the dead, you might have life and living hope in the resurrection from the dead and relationship with the Father. But that you might see Jesus as the Son of God who died for you because he loves you and who rose from the dead bodily conquering sin and death that you might have life, a hope 
that's alive, a living hope because it's focused and centered on Jesus Christ of Nazareth who sits alive at the right hand of God and intercedes for you. And you might have that living hope in a resurrection from the dead that these bodies will one day be put in the ground unless Jesus comes back before that that we will be given new bodies that we will be the second fruits if you will of creation following new bodies like Jesus' glorified body and that we will live in the new heavens and the new earth relationship with the Father seeing Jesus forever as he truly is guys we want to see what truly is Look at creation. I encourage you, challenge you, exhort you, beg you. During this fall season, when you look around, see the beauty, but make sure you don't miss the hand that's behind sustaining the beauty. And allow that to pour over into your ability to see everything. To see this as the word of life that you have to be reading. Not because it's a, a duty, but because it allows us to see the world as it truly is, to know the living God. It allows us to see ourselves as we truly are. It allows us to see our King as He truly is. That is our hope. That's our joy. And we get to do that as a gift from our God. Brothers and sisters, what a sweet, sweet privilege. For those who have eyes to see, I pray that's us. Let us see. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious King and God, we know that you are creator and sustainer. We know, Father, of your righteousness and your great judgment. And we are so grateful, Lord, that in Jesus Christ we have the forgiveness of sins. We have new life as new creations, as your children, as Jesus' co-heirs. Lord, we thank you for the redemption that you have uh, secured for us at such a grave price. Father, help us to see clearly, to see our world, to see your mighty hand sustaining it, to see your word, to see ourselves, and most importantly, to see Jesus. Lord, be with us by the power of your spirit. Enable us to do that which we cannot do on our own. And help us to glorify you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.